cyber nerds we're here with the third episode of the scary mary podcast and i'm joined yet again by scary mary herself ceo and founder of crown jewel insurance mary guzman (laughs) thank you for having me (laughs) today we're going to be talking about vendor risk and i'm going to start off by giving a little bit of background as most of you know there's been a lot of vendor breaches third-party supply chain breaches that have affected a lot of downstream customers (laughs) um and words are hard um and so i think i feel like you can't open the news or you know look on your phone without reading about another breach at um the hands of a vendor so we're going to talk a little bit about that today whether it's colonial pipeline or you know the german bank there's been solar winds all of the things um so let's talk a little bit about mary from your point of view um, the Colonial Pipeline and you know what happened, who was covered, who wasn't covered, and how that gives bigger implications to the future. Okay, thank you for asking. So we did do just a short video on this already, um, but it was we tried to keep it to two minutes and I couldn't go into much detail. So I've been asked by several people why I thought that some of that exposure may have been covered and some not and under whose policy and that kind of thing. So I thought I would just take this opportunity to clarify. In that scenario, um, Colonial Pipeline is obviously not a technology company. So they are not, would not fall under the specific definition of a technology service provider, which is often the first thing that you look for to see who is included as third-party service providers that are covered under a cyber policy form. When you're thinking about your own insurance and the vendors and suppliers who are providing products and services to you, that's a really important coverage component. Um, but if we just move the move the um, checkerboard over and look first at Colonial Pipeline's own policy form, let's talk about that. So let's assume that Colonial Pipeline bought $30 million of cyber insurance, which if I had to guess is probably somewhere in the ballpark. They mm-hmm. should have bought way more. <laughs> um, but most pipelines, um, and frankly a lot of utility and energy clients, don't buy nearly enough limit, in my humble opinion. Um, they would have had kind of a broad cyber policy that covered both their own first-party exposure and their third-party exposure. They were the victim of a ransomware attack. They paid $6 million in ransom. They got the encryption key. It didn't work. Um, so then they spent an additional five to six days trying to get their systems back up and running so that they could continue supplying fuel downstream to their convenience store and you know and other customers with whom they had contracted to provide fuel services. So they would have spent $6 million on day one. They would have incurred significant additional extra expense associated with trying to get the system back up and running by paying their own people overtime, probably hiring a bunch of forensics experts, a disaster recovery and business continuity team from maybe a PricewaterhouseCoopers or somebody like that to come in and help them get their system back up and running, which could would have cost a pretty penny. Meanwhile, they've probably hired attorneys. They've got a lot of different folks on retainer. Um, so they've got all that extra expense going on from an insurance standpoint, but at the same time, they, Colonial Pipeline, are losing significant income 
because they are not providing fuel and that's how they get paid. And so if they're not providing fuel to their customers and there's no force, force majeure provision that allows them to get around still being able to collect under their, their own um, contracts with their customers, then they're gonna be out that income as well. Force majeure is something that we could talk about in detail in another podcast, but it's a really important feature when you're looking at um, whether or not a cyber event could potentially trigger a force majeure clause in a policy. Usually it's not going to. It could be considered vandalism or malicious mischief, but at any rate, let's just assume that they lost income during that time. I'm going to bet that their $30 million is gone, assuming they had a $30 million limit. Mm-hmm. Now you have their customers, the convenience stores um, like like Racetrack and BP and all the other ones around here that we're familiar with since we live in Atlanta, mm-hmm. that went without fuel for several days, which means not only did they not sell fuel, but nobody was going into the convenience stores to buy cigarettes, beer, you know, Coca-Cola, the other things, the, the other things they go into the store to purchase. So those convenience stores really lost a lot of money. If you had 300 or 500 locations up and down the eastern seaboard that were all without gas for several days, then not only were you not selling gas, you were losing money from the other products that you didn't sell. So as a result, those organizations are going to try to recover. They're going to sue, basically, Colonial Pipeline for breach of contract. Which they did. Which they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, I'm going to, you know, again, sort of make the assumption that there's no limit left for them to pay any of those losses under their cyber policy. There's no coverage anywhere else in any other policy form that they would purchase because it was a cyber-driven loss that caused them to be, be unable to provide fuel. And so... Um, they hopefully, well, and and assuming they have a very strong balance sheet, they may be able to make some of those customers whole, but my guess, suspicion, is that they're going to end up with pennies on the dollar in the way of a settlement, and whatever they get is going to come straight off of Colonial Pipeline's balance sheet. So they're going to have to pay dozens, if not hundreds, of potential customers who all suffered a loss at the same time from the same event that was their fault. Now, if you switch and put your hat on as the customer, so now I'm going to be a convenience store who has my own cyber policy, mm-hmm. um, and let's say that I bought $30 million in limits as a convenience store. Hopefully, convenience stores are buying a lot more than that because they have a huge privacy exposure, but that's for a different day. Um, they would have what's called contingent business interruption coverage under their cyber policy. The cyber policies had gotten extremely broad in providing full contingent business interruption, even for system failure. But, you know, in the last sort of 12 to 18 months, especially in the last six months, we've seen a significant contraction of that capacity specifically in the market because I think the carriers are finally starting to realize that they have been giving away free coverage for a risk that they really have no control over Mm -hmm. by offering blanket contingent business interruption. Even though if a client had, if, if a convenience store had full contingent business interruption coverage under their policy wording, considering that they're, that Colonial Pipeline is not a technology service provider, there's very likely going to be some loopholes or at least some challenges in getting any kind of recovery from their own cyber carrier for contingent business interruption. 
They would also have to have full coverage for ransomware under their own cyber policy because the only way CBI coverage responds is if the peril that caused the loss Mm -hmm. is covered under your own policy form and ransomware is harder and harder to get covered. Then they would have to go through their deductible or their time element retention before they received any money. So the long and short of it is that this is a really good um, tale Uh, or example for organizations to think about when they just kind of blow off their contractual provisions where they try to push coverage or push indemnity and limitation of liability provisions to their vendors, the vendors push back and then they sign the contract anyway. You know, this should be a a wake-up call for organizations to not do that uh, because they can't afford to take on risks of thousands of vendors, maybe hundreds, but some in some cases thousands of vendors across their portfolio or across their supply chain without any real way to get indemnified. Um, and if you if you start reporting other people's losses under your own cyber policy, the renewals are gonna get really, really difficult. You might get it paid once, but your renewal is gonna be a nightmare, I can promise you that. Well, thank you for that. That's a really in-depth um, <laughs> that and, scary, and scary, scary um, Mary. <laughs> overview of what happened. And, And the crazy thing is that Colonial Pipeline is just one example of this happening. It was their customers not being prepared for one of their third-party service providers not to perform. And so do you want to reiterate a little bit how that could have been changed if they would have had a specific coverage? Such as VendorGuard? Maybe. Yes. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we kind of saw this risk coming. you know, several years ago, and that is one of the signature products that we developed here at Crown Jewel Insurance for exactly this reason. Mm-hmm. That is that there is a huge disconnect between the vendor or service provider community, especially in technology, and their customer base. Um, and by the way, even vendors and third-party service providers are going to have their own vendors and third-party service providers. So there's this crazy interconnectivity between all things technology today that makes it really difficult to draw a line in the sand around whose insurance should respond, who's going to be indemnified, what the limitations of liability are going to look like. So it's not an easy problem to solve. Um, but. If we had had that program in place, then the convenience stores themselves could have pushed VendorGuard out to their supply chain, you know, their most significant vendors, not only their technology service providers, but also their suppliers, their fuel suppliers in this case, for example, where the policy wording would provide contract-specific tech E&O and cyber, third-party cyber, to the vendor so that 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 specific policy only inures to the benefit to the enterprise that's pushing it to them. Mm -hmm. The enterprise being the convenience store in this example, um, who would maybe have pushed that out to 250 or 500 technology service providers and other vendors that they rely upon for either uptime or to keep their information confidential, kind of in those two really big buckets, Mm -hmm. um, so that if there is an aggregation or a systemic problem at a significant supplier or vendor, that that vendor's insurance becomes in some ways almost irrelevant, their big corporate insurance. They don't have to worry about if that limit's gone um, by all the other customers who are suing them because they can make a claim under this policy and they know that they will get appropriately 
um, indemnified and that the limitation of liability provisions and the indemnity wording in their contracts with those vendors mm -hmm. should become much easier to negotiate because now you know they're going to have this robust policy that specifically covers breach of contract, which is unusual for E&O and cyber in general to just blatantly cover breach of contract. Um, and you know, at least they'll get indemnified for the limit that they required that vendor to purchase. Right. So just for our non-insurance people out there, perfect world, let's say the Shell gas station in Alfred, Georgia, ran out of gas due to Colonial Pipeline's failure to supply. Yes. They had Vendor Guard in place. So just like every other gas station, they lost customers. They couldn't sell fuel, but they were indemnified for their loss. They were made whole because the vendor, Colonial Pipeline, failed to supply. And bought this coverage that's contract-specific just to Shell. Right. So Shell would file a claim against them for mm -hmm. breach of contract mm -hmm. and their provision of professional services or fuel supply services. Right. Um, and because it was a covered loss, a ransomware event, it would have triggered the policy. Um, we are starting to see some contraction or constriction in ransomware limits that we can get, um, just in, in full disclosure. But um, yes, that is true. That is an absolute fact. The other thing I wanted to add is that a huge component of what we're doing as part of this program has to do with compliance. Um, and, and I think one of the other things we're going to talk about is what the government is doing mm -hmm. now. Maybe too little, too late, but they're doing something. Um, but compliance is a huge issue, you know, right. just um, dealing with your vendors. And I think we're going to start to see a lot more intervention at state and federal levels around the sort of making sure that you're, you know what your vendors are doing and that, you know, that, that you're managing that exposure properly rather than just a checklist, which is a lot of, what a lot of organizations do now. And kind of holding those vendors or third-party service providers' feet to the fire in terms of, um, their information security maturity and policies and procedures and making sure they have endpoint you know technology deployed and that they've got good business continuity and disaster recovery plans all those kinds of things but it has to be automated because most organizations have hundreds if not thousands of vendors so it is an overwhelming task for any procurement or legal or other group to try to manage those um, on a, on a one-off kind of manual basis with checklists and that kind of thing. So we partnered with an organization out of Israel called CyberRight to do a, kind of a risk assessment for us that not only gives you um, using artificial intelligence and actual breaches that have occurred, um, a score, if you will, for that vendor's own cybersecurity maturity at this point um, relative to their peers, right? Um, which can help you mitigate and manage that risk. You know, obviously, if you um, if somebody didn't score very well, you can go back to them and ask them to do some things differently before you renew their contract. But as importantly, or more importantly, CyberRight can help us help the client determine what their exposure is monetarily to each individual vendor based on some of the additional questions that we're asking as part of our proprietary underwriting process that allows us to go back to the client and rank the vendors based on highest to lowest risk. Mm -hmm. um, it's not perfect by any stretch. It's kind of more of an art than a science, um, and we don't hold it out to be perfect. But at least it would allow the enterprise to mitigate and manage their risk for their highest exposed, you know, the vendors that expose them to the highest loss. Right. Well, and I think 
I think I've been really surprised with the lack of personnel that companies have dedicated to just manage their vendor governance and vendor risk. And I think the key word there and like Cyberite is very complex, but I think a, the most important part about it is that it, it is automated and that just to be frank, like even the biggest organizations that we that you know, I've come across don't have the amount of personnel it really takes to effectively manage like their vendor risk. And CyberRite bringing the automation to the picture is gonna make that task feasible for a small team or even one person to do and do it well, right? Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a huge benefit to a lot of organizations who, um, as you said, you know, right now are just struggling to keep their heads above water in terms of managing that that exposure. Mm-hmm. And you kind of touched on um, this a little bit, but we're going to go back to it. Um, so as of July 22nd, 2021, the Biden administration is pushing out security requirements to basically try to mitigate the um, Colonial Pipeline incident from ever happening again um, to, like you said, um, make these vendors and critical infrastructure suppliers have a certain amount of security. And can you kind of elaborate on that and talk about whether or not you think that it is enough and has it is it on time? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, no, it is not on time, obviously. <laughs> um, but you know, better late than never, I suppose. That's true. Um, you know, we've, we've sort of known this risk was out there, not just for, and I guess the thing that I would like to reiterate is that, yes, pipelines and fuel suppliers, um, you know, oil and gas companies in general have a significant, very significant cyber-related exposure, but it could have been so much worse. Right. There could have been um, a concerted effort by nation-state actors to cause bodily injury and property damage or even death as a result of a cyber-related attack as opposed to just economic harm, which they did this time. But I think it should be a huge wake-up call to every critical infrastructure industry. And the fact that the government is only focused now on pipelines is just stupid, in my opinion, or very short-sighted because you know, that's just who happened to already have a really obvious loss. But we have financial institutions and healthcare organizations and tech and telecom without communications. If you were to couple, you know, a communication um, outage, significant communication and internet outage with a physical attack of some kind, it would be catastrophic in nature. And so, you know, I feel like whatever you know, I'm not a technology expert enough to say whether or not the specific requirements they're going to push down are going to be enough. My experience tells me that they will be watered down too much by the time they're actually implemented because the lobbyists on behalf of all of these organizations have too much power to have the requirements have enough teeth. Again, humble opinion. Um, but still, it's better, it's better than nothing. And I, I would really like to see all critical infrastructure industries, they're called critical infrastructure for a reason. And when I was doing some work with DHS several years ago with the Department of Homeland Security, there was a big insurance task force. You know, we defined critical infrastructure and talked a lot about the critical infrastructure industries because they're all really important to our economy and to the safety and health of our, our individuals. So. You know, I would like to see that pushed out to other critical infrastructure industries. Unfortunately, I think as long as 85% of our critical infrastructure is run by p- private 
companies as opposed to the government. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants a smaller government. I totally get that. I'm, in theory, on board with that. But organizations are run by people, and people are motivated by money, unfortunately. And if the proper incentives are not there at the board level and with shareholders and with tax incentives and everything else, you know, holding board members accountable for understanding what their critical infrastructure exposure risk is Mm -hmm. and mitigating it properly, not letting everybody and their mother get off on the prudent person rule when litigation comes in from a DNO standpoint, but also um, providing proper incentives for people to, as you said, add more resources because they don't have enough. They do not have enough people, simply put, people process and technology to deal with this overwhelming exposure. So if you give them some incentives to invest in that area, then we can all sleep better at night, or at least I can. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure if anyone's going to be able to sleep after listening to this, but... (laughs) Um, I think that was that was awesome. We got through, you know, everything we wanted to. And um, if you're listening and that interested you or scared you or both um, and you would like to learn more, um, you can visit our website, which is www.crownjewelinsurance.com. And if you'd like a more frequent terrifying news alert, then you can follow us on social media. It's at Crown Jewel Insurance or on Twitter. It is at Crown Jewel underscore INS. And sign up for our newsletter. We send it out once a month. Thanks, everybody. Mm